Forbes magazine calls him one of the most listened to recording artists of our time, with more than 3 billion streams and 11 number one albums on top Billboard charts. This is All Heart with Paul Cardall. Welcome to season five of All Heart. I'm your host, Paul Cardall. If you're tuning in for the first time, this podcast is an opportunity to hear from people I admire. We get to the heart of why they do what they do in hopes of inspiring and encouraging you to fine-tune the gifts God has also given you. Cause you took my scars, bruises and So honored to have Tracy Levicki on the show today because she's an expert on all kinds of things. She's a psychotherapist, has a has had a private practice since 1998. She's very intelligent, and she has a lot to offer us in working through a lot of the challenges that families face when there's a major illness, a chronic illness. And we've talked a lot on this program about congenital heart disease which is something Tracy's very familiar with because she was born with a complex heart defect like me. Her expertise is families with congenital heart disease, but there's so much more to what she does. So we'll just kind of get into this, Tracy, and thank you for being here. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. What is the number one thing that you deal with, particularly in your practice? Um, You know, I have a pretty generic practice. I see um, mostly adults, um, individuals and couples. And my focus is on working with folks with serious chronic illness. So I would say the majority of that group of my patients are cardiac patients, both acquired cardiac and, and congenital. I also see folks with other diagnoses, you know, sometimes cancer, sometimes chronic fatigue. Um, so it really just, it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, that is the majority of the folks that I see. Everybody has a family member affected by some type of illness. Tell us a little bit about your background actually having a chronic illness. You were born with congenital heart disease. Can you just briefly share with us what you experienced to now? I mean, you're a survivor. Yeah, that's very true. So I was born in uh, Western Massachusetts in a town that unfortunately doesn't really have any large teaching institutions, uh, hospitals. So I was born and I was born with something called transposition of the great arteries. My The blood was not circulating. I was not getting oxygen when I was first born. In fact, the doctor told my parents back then, there's really not a lot that can be done. There's a new surgery that just came out, but I don't recommend it because your baby will have a lifelong, you know, a a life full of pain and suffering. Now, my parents, who were teenagers, (laughs) heard this news. You know, they called a priest to baptize me, and they gave me last rites. Hmm. And that was it. But then sometime that evening, my father said, no way, and called an ambulance, got some kind of a private ambulance to take me to Yale, where I had a procedure that oxygenated my blood and made it possible for me to live another two years until they did the bigger uh, reconstructive surgery, um, which is called the mustard procedure. So I had that 
when I was two and a half years old. I just want everybody to recognize that heart surgery began really during the Korean War. And then one of the first major surgeries was actually on a child. You were born in 1967. Is that true? That's right. Born in 1967. Now, listener, Heart surgery was brand new. You don't just cut into the body. You don't just open an infant and go in and mess with the human heart because the child is going to die. And yet we've gotten to the point in the history of the world where we have obtained enough knowledge by the grace of God to go in to an infant, to a child, and correct a damaged, broken heart. You do that 2,000 years ago, uh, you do that even 50 years ago, it's considered a miracle. And so the fact, Tracy, that you, me, all these people that are born with complex heart defects, the number one leading cause of infant-related deaths, the very fact that Mm -hmm. we're surviving is a tribute to our society and what we've been able to come together and accomplish. You survived, you got your last rights, but you know, those are going to have to be delayed. Well, it's, it's, Actually, kind of an interesting story because when I arrived at Yale, I was what, like a day and a half old. I was I was met by a brand new fellow, this young woman who had just started her pediatric fellowship. And she took one look at me and I was turning blue because, you know, of the lack of oxygen. I was basically suffocating. And she took one look at me and she called the attending and said, you've got to get in here real quick. This this baby needs an intervention. And he said, I can't. I threw my back out. I can't get in there tonight. There is no way. And he said, you're just going to have to do it because she's going to die soon anyway. And what do you have to lose? So she describes, and we're still in touch, by the way. This woman's amazing. We're still friends. And she told me that the instrument that was needed for this procedure was still in an unopened box because it had just arrived through the mail because it was such a new surgery. So she opened it up and she had only seen one video on this procedure and she did it and it worked. So that is something that I really feel, you know, I've been really lucky to be surrounded by people who have been my helpers, you know, between my dad, you know, calling an ambulance and then Dr. D is what I affectionately call her for pulling it off and making it work. Yeah. So that was kind of the beginning of my life. And, you know, I grew up as a child with a congenital heart defect. I, you know, had some physical limitations. Um, You know, I couldn't necessarily participate in everything they were doing in PE. And, you know, the, the one other thing I'm really fortunate for is my parents always said, trust your body, follow your body, you know, do what you can do. So, you know, I always tried and couldn't always do it. And, uh, you know, I was in the hospital maybe once or twice as a kid for catheterizations. And then during my adolescence, that's when some problems started, Hmm. health-related problems. So I had, I guess I kind of feel like I had a little bit of a break in early childhood. And then... It's interesting how that happens because there's these major surgeries that take place as infants because, you know, there's stages where the heart is growing and surgeons can't operate certain periods and so by the grace of god we're able to from age three four until maybe teenage years it's like we have a little grace period you know that's right a grace period and then when right when we're in the developmental stage and we're supposed to be learning how to grow up the Mm -hmm. inner child doesn't get that opportunity to mature 
because we go into this experience that a lot of us don't realize till later on in our life. Yeah, you're right. I mean, adolescence is a real pivotal point where we should be, you know, becoming more independent and starting to, you know, develop more uh, deeper peer relationships and whatnot. So yeah, I was 12 and uh, started becoming symptomatic and was told that I needed to have a pacemaker implanted. So I've had a pacemaker now. I was in and out of the hospital probably about three times in those first two years due to some malfunctions. The lead had been broken and the device had failed. So I was in and out a few times. And, you know, I remember missing school, you know. I remember, um, you know, one thing that, that happened that was pretty big in my life right before that happened was my father died very suddenly. So my mom was left with me and my two siblings. And so going back and forth to the hospital, and by the way, the hospital wasn't just around the corner. It was a good hour and a half to two hour drive. So my mom was really juggling at the way a lot of parents do with kids that have a chronic illness, juggling childcare and you know, who's going to take me to the hospital and who's going to be there with me. And, you know, there was only one of her. So I was oftentimes she was really kind of caught between me and my two younger siblings. So that was a big stressor that I hear about from a lot of families that I, I work with. I think it's really very difficult on the siblings. You probably see this in your practice because there's a lot of attention drawn to the one that has the illness. We seem to get a lot of attention, even though we go through a tremendous amount of suffering. And yet the kids left at home, there seems to be something going on there as well, even though they're not suffering that has long-term effects as well. Maybe you want to address that after we finish this this story of you growing up. There's so many dynamics to the, the situation, the long-term effects on a family and relationships. Do you, I mean, do you see that? Are you seeing that in your practice? I do. Yeah. And it and it really just depends on not only the family situation, but also the individuals. You know, I think the siblings do suffer. You know, there is a lot of attention placed, as you said, on the ill child. And I think they are kind of left to their own in terms of, um, you know, making decisions and getting attention. And, you know, and I think that also the worry for their sibling, you know, they're worried. They don't want their sibling to have to go through this, you know, and there's a lot of fear around that. And sometimes I've even seen some resentment around that. Why have I been the one that was kind of left out and and not really given, you know, a lot of that focus? Um, One of the things I do now is I consult with the Adult Congenital Heart Association and we have a peer mentorship program. And one of the things that we feel really strongly about is um, bringing on mentors that are not only um, CHD patients, but that are also siblings and parents so that they can talk about their experience um, later on. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think we're now finally in a period where families are a lot more open to having these discussions. They're a lot more open to seeing therapists and getting the help that is necessary. I grew up in a situation where it seemed like religion had all the answers, but at the same time, religious leaders where I came from were also doctors. And they would eventually encourage, yeah, you do need to go see a professional. We're not professionals at therapy. And finally, I think we're, we're getting to the point where families, if you have any type of situations like this, you should. It is necessary. It is important to go and actually sit down and process 
the past, process the things that are bothering you uh, in order to heal and to move forward. Yeah, it's just, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that things are um, better today for people that are going through this. Um, Back then, mental health was never mentioned. That type of support was never really offered to my family. I wish it had been, but, um, you know, that's something, you know, as I got older, I sought out for myself, um, which was extremely helpful. And now, you know, we, uh, you know, I, I consider myself to be an advocate for, you know, CHD, but other, also other chronic illnesses. And I, I am advocating for more mental health support, especially now, even for, you know, kids and adults um, to try to get that integrated into the specialized care centers. Well, and you've written, I think, the first book ever on the, the, the psychosocial, the emotional, and the practical challenges of living with congenital heart disease. Because most families with, with this number one cause of infant-related deaths, the, I mean, we could get into the statistics of congenital heart disease. You just don't see it on somebody. They'd have to take their shirt off for you to see the scar but there are so many families and people affected by this, but there's never been actually a book where you can get instruction on how to you know, navigate through this crisis. And you are the first. So congratulations. And thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Uh, how did the book come about? Because were you, you were probably totally aware there was nothing available. And now you absolutely you yourself. Yeah, I mean... I literally um, scoured bookstores and libraries to try to find any kind of information to um, almost normalize the experience and the feelings I I was having. And there was nothing out there. There were books for acquired heart disease, you know, for the older adult that needed to change their diet or change their lifestyle. But for a 20-year-old young woman you know, who who had a lifelong heart condition, that was not helpful. So I actually wrote an outline for this book um, probably about 25 years ago. And um, just life, you know, with everything that went on in life, you know, I, I was really blessed to be able to have my my children and, you know, a really um, busy career that I love. So I never really did much with it. And then one day I was actually preparing for a talk on body image and CHD. And I came across a really interesting exhibit. And it was an exhibit that was done by a psychologist in Scotland. And she had these really large posters or, you know, pieces of art of um, congenital heart patients um, showing all their scars. Hmm. And then they, she would have the model standing next to these posters to show, look, you would have no idea what these individuals had gone through. So I reached out to her to see if I could use some of her slides and we connected and stayed in touch and started collaborating. And then one day, you know, I mentioned, or one of us mentioned, you know, we've always wanted to do a book and we exchanged our outlines and they were almost identical. So, and this, this psychologist is also a CHD, um, an individual with a CHD and um, she's also a huge advocate for this community. So we, believe it or not, Paul, we've never met. We've met only virtually, um, but we've never met in person. Liza Morton. And yeah, Dr. Lisa Morton. Um, she's in Scotland. We had 
the same goals for this book. You know, it is the first of its kind to really address the emotional and psychological and practical issues that many, not all, but many folks do encounter. And there's a quote that I read so many years ago, which is CHD patients suffer silently and worry worry alone. And yep. that really stuck with me. It is It is a very lonely path, you know? It really is. I now look back and it's almost like it's I it's ironic because you go in as a child, uh, you know, and I had surgery as, a, as an adult. And a lot of people into their adulthood have a lot of these procedures. You go in and you try to, you know, you get fixed while everybody else is hoping, praying and waiting. Everything turns out you're going in, you're paying for torture. You know, in a way, you're paying for torture in order to get well. But there's also a lot of attention to it. So you're getting this tremendous amount of love. There seems to be this element of I need to suffer to get acceptance and love. You know, I'm talking about this weird dynamic of I see so many kids growing up with a chronic illness. And when they are not going through it. They don't feel as associated as when Mm -hmm. they are going through it. They feel totally associated with it because it's what has defined them, not by their choice. Right. But it's a very complex thing that I don't think a lot of people understand. I understand what you're saying. I mean, I've heard from some people that being in the hospital is actually a more comfortable place for them because you know, they are, you know, these procedures are painful and scary, you know, they're getting that attention and they don't really have to deal with a lot of, you know, life's other challenges. And then when we come out of the hospital, we're juggling it all. We're juggling the CHD and, you know, quote unquote, normal life challenges. So, you know, one of the, one of the goals for this book was to really just let people know that they're not alone, that there are many other individuals out there. I mean, I read there are between two to three million adults in the U.S. with congenital heart a congenital heart condition. So, and, and if you're feeling alone, there are ways to connect and ways to get support. Um, and in the book, we have a whole section on different resources that people can access. So I think that was, you know, also really important to us. Um, and also in the book, we we provide evidence-based strategies and coping skills that can be used for anyone with any kind of chronic illness. Actually, quite frankly, these strategies can really be used for anybody because everybody out there with CHD or not has stress. Right. So we have three chapters full of these different strategies. Give us an example of maybe one of the tools that a person can use who has stress from knowing they have to go into the hospital for a procedure. Yeah. I mean, that is stressful to know that you're going in for a procedure or a surgery. And, you know, research shows that if you're emotionally prepared to have a procedure or surgery, you're going to heal faster and require less pain medication. So some of the things that um, I I teach the people I work with um, are about um, stress management, some different techniques, maybe some breathing techniques or some guided imagery exercises. I also really try to impress upon people to visualize what things will be like 
after the procedure. So instead of really focusing on the actual procedure, think about what your goals are going to be when you come out. And so that's part of the exercise that I do with folks. And I think also for some people, distraction really helps, right? Whether it's reading or watching a good Netflix series or maybe walking, you know, doing puzzles, talking to friends, reaching out to get more social support is super important. Another thing I like to impress upon people is, you know, when somebody asks you, how can I help? assign them to do something. A lot of people come to me and say, oh, it's so hard for me to ask for help. But I say, please do, because not only is that going to help you in the short run, but also that friend of yours is going to remember that and they're going to feel more comfortable coming to you when they need help. So I always like to say, try to establish a team of people and give them some assignments, whether it's meal preparation, child care, rides to different doctor's appointments, you know, make, maybe making a call tree to let people know how you're doing. Yeah, it's an interesting path. It's an interesting path. And there's so many things we can be doing better than just, I'm fine. You know, I'm here because of all the helpers in my life. And so I think it's important for people to, um, you know, have, have a sense of that they that there are people that want to be there for you if needed. You know, if you can't identify anyone in your life, then, you know, there are a lot of, like I said, the resources, there are people out there that, that can help and organizations that want to help. Yeah. In the adult congenital heart disease world, there is the adult congenital heart disease association and you can plug yourself into that. They have, uh, I think they have annual gatherings and you can connect with people by attending those there's local chapters and and of course you know it may not necessarily be the specific group but there are groups that you can plug yourself into uh, by talking with one of your therapists or talking with uh, whoever you know maybe your pastor or church leader or someone in the community school Um, just ask for where you can go to have kind of a group of people to talk to uh, because they exist. They're everywhere. It's just, you, you have to make an effort. You have to be proactive with your health. It's like your father, Tracy was proactive in asking questions that got you to where you are. My father was a broadcast journalist. And so he asked the tough questions of the doctors. And as a result, by asking questions and not being shy, being bold, you're, you're more likely going to be able to challenge your doctors to think better, more effectively than just to go the man, go the standard routine. You don't go and buy the car they give you. You shop, you do research, you look around. And that should be the same thing with our physical and mental well-being, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. There's a study that I read recently that said, I think it was 60% of individuals that seek a second opinion have something changed in either their treatment or their diagnosis. So I think that's really important. And a lot of people will say to me, well, I don't want to hurt my doctor's feelings. I think it's important. And I think that most doctors, you know, shouldn't have their feelings hurt. You know, they understand that this is important and uh, you need to find the best person who has the most experience to treat you. 
You do. We talk about bedside manner. Uh, it's okay to not have the bedside manner in talking to your doctors. You need to challenge. You need to ask. You need to know what their skills are and what what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. But then at the same time, you have insurance challenges and things you need to deal with because there are doctors that are within your your insurance, and then there are doctors who are not, and you need to get the resources to be able to fund a lot of those procedures. So your book is called Healing Hearts and Minds, A Holistic Approach to Coping Well with Congenital Heart Disease. Uh, It's reasonably priced. Amazon always discounts things. You can get it there. You can, yeah, it's pretty. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. You're welcome. Because you took my scars, bruises and Number one, Billboard pianist Paul Cardall. Do you believe in miracles and second chances? Over a decade ago, I was raised from the dead. Read Paul's story, The Broken Miracle, by J.D. Netto. Visit thebrokenmiracle.com.